Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Pray. Lord God, as we come to hear your Word again this morning, we ask that you would bring life to your people. We ask that the Spirit, He would be here, He would be active, convicting us of sin, encouraging us, comforting us, and guiding us. We ask with anticipation, knowing that when we gather in the name of your Son, as we have, you are among us. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. One of the uh, great joys of being a parent is literally watching your, your child going from a helpless infant to becoming an adult and watching them learn things and grow as a person. And this happens, you notice as a parent, both really slowly and also really fast at the same time. Learning things like whether it's learning how to walk as your child takes his or her first steps or how to shoot a basketball or hit a baseball or whatever it is, it takes time. It takes effort. There's a lot of frustration in the children as they learn these things. It involves failing. It involves falling down and learning to pick yourself back up. The process of growing up and maturing is really fits and starts. Fits and starts all the time. And as parents, I have to remind myself, and you should remind yourself as well, that that's how it happens for children. Lest we get discouraged and then discourage them. Unless we crush our children out of some misguided desire for perfection, failing to realize they're kids. This is how they grow. This is how they mature. My wife is often to remind me when I'm frustrated with someone younger than myself, she'll say, hey, what were you like at that time? And I'm like, uh, good point. In this passage, Peter compares being a Christian as, uh, to being a Christian as to being a young child, even a nursing child. And he's encouraging the church um, to grow up or in growing up in the faith. And by that he means to grow up into salvation. And talking about kids and stuff falling down. The growing up into salvation. And so child rearing and being a child and growing up is a lot what it's like to be a Christian. This is what it what it means to be a Christian. You are like a child, like our children. We need to guard against a perfectionism that can become counterproductive. To be clear, you and I should be growing. If you look back at yourself or if somebody who knows you looks back at who you were 10 years ago, they should see some, some progress, a striving towards the goal of perfection without, with realizing that you won't be perfect until Christ comes back. But we are, until then, little children wholly dependent upon God. This section is closely attached to what we covered last week. We talked about being born again. 
So Peter says to the church here, you have been born again by an imperishable seed. You have begun a new life. And that imperishable seed is the very word of God. And this next section here is calling them to grow in maturity as they have now been born again by the word of God. We are like little children. And as we grow and develop in our faith, there will be real times of winning. There will be real moments of falling down again. And like the teenage years, there will be real moments of awkwardness in our faith. But in it all, God works to shape his people. He works for their good. He's a true father to us, to bring us up into maturity. So what does it look like to do what Peter says here, to grow up into salvation? What are the marks of a mature faith, a growing faith? Well, that's what we're going to spend our time on here this morning. The first step to growing in the faith is a really simple concept. It's repeated throughout Scripture in various uh, different ways. And it is this, to put away your sin. To put away your sin. If there is something that will keep you immature in the faith, it is not putting away your sin. Listen to verse 1. So put away all malice, all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. The verse starts with the word so, or we could put it another way, therefore, because of what we just talked about at the end of chapter 1, being born again by the imperishable seed of the word, because of that, do this. Because of what God has done in you, you need to live a certain way. Because you are now in Christ, because you are now a new creation, you are called to live like what you are. And so we are reminded yet again that salvation in its initial forms Regeneration, being born again. Justification, being declared righteous. is wholly a work of grace. It's all God. You have done nothing. But those things bring entailments with them. They bring implications. They bring weight to your life. You are dead in your sins and your trespasses. And dead men and women cannot do anything to make themselves alive. God does that wholly by grace. So I'll say that to you again. You cannot be saved by works. You must be saved by grace alone. But that grace does not take away human responsibility and agency. You are still called to do certain things. I, I know why, and to some extent, Reformed people like myself don't like talking about works. We want to protect, to say that this faith is wholly different than the Catholic faith, and it certainly is. But we cannot then ignore all the numerous passages of Scripture that say, do this do that. Do this. Don't do that. Those two are inspired words of God. The commands of Scripture are numerous, and we are called to follow those imperatives because God has done a new work in us first. And one of the steps in growing in faith is to put off what is hindering us, what is causing us to stay immature, to put off our sin, put off that which is contrary to what Christ has done for us. Now again, that is a very easy concept. Pastors, we sometimes joke among ourselves saying, I spend most of my time saying, just stop doing that. It's an easy concept. Stop sinning. It's really hard to live out. One of the steps in growing in faith is the knowledge and the effort to learn to put things off. Because there is this tension between the old self in every Christian 
who is wrought in sin, who enjoys sin, who desires sin, and the new self that is being created in, in the image of Christ. One of the marks of being a Christian is that you feel that tension. If there is no tension in you when you're sinning, then you're not a Christian. But you feel those two different desires at war within you. A desire for holiness and a desire for sin. And this will mark your life from one degree to another the entirety of your time here on earth until Christ returns. And so we are called to put away our sin. Or as Paul says in Ephesians and in Colossians, to put off our sins. They are not who we are anymore. They are at war with what God is doing in you. And hear me, they are destructive. They will wreck you. They will wreck your family. They will wreck your church, your institutions you are a part of. They are wrecking all of creation. So put them away. The list here given by Peter is far from an exhaustive list. But Peter is focusing on sins that destroy the unity of the church. Like, why is he giving us this list of sins? He is trying to tell the church, you need to put these away because they will weaken the body of Christ. These are the very sins that the world commits against you because you are following Christ, and you should not be committing them against one another within the church. That is the focus of what Peter is getting at here. So he lists some of these. Malice. Put away all malice. That is ill will, especially within the church, that destroys the fellowship among believers. You should not have this stored up ill will for other Christians in this congregation. That will destroy your relationship with them. One of the things I hear again and again from from visitors or, or new members or regular attenders about Christ Bible Church is the sweet fellowship that we have. That sweet fellowship can be ruined if we store up malice for one another. Many of us have seen and experienced small conflicts within church communities that really aren't that big of a deal, but because people store up malice for one another, eventually they explode. And what, what should be marked by a sweetness and a unity and a fellowship is destroyed. Because instead of putting away malice, we embrace it. Instead of killing malice, we feel that we have some justification towards it because someone did something sometime. Peter says, don't do that. So we are called to be on the watch for such malice within our own hearts, within our own congregations, and to guard against it because Satan is indeed cunning. And he would love nothing more than to sow the seeds of malice in any congregation. And he has often succeeded in doing just that. Next, Peter says, comes deceit. Put away all deceit. That is lies and corruption. But the focus here isn't so much an outright lie. Like if I told you the sky is purple or or something like that, or grass is orange or something else that a woke person would think up. The focus here is less than honest communication. That you are communicating with people, but you're holding a little bit of it back because you have an ulterior motive. I'm only going to tell John this much of what's going on. Even though if I told him this much, it might change how he would think about it because I want him to get him on, on my side for this conflict. In other words, Peter says we should speak plainly and honestly as Christians. We should not act like politicians who massage the truth to fit our desires. Such actions have no place in the truth or in the church. Do you ever think how many times in the New Testament it talks about speaking the truth, speaking the truth, speaking the truth? Like the church should be a place that is marked with plain speech. Like I shouldn't have to guess what you actually mean by your words. 
And that's something many of you know that I excel at. I just tell you plainly, this is what it is. This is what I think. These are the thi- this should mark the basic communication style of Christians. We do not speak out of both sides of our mouths. We do not play politics with the truth. You should know what other people think about something. If you can't communicate that way, then you should keep your mouth shut until you can. Closely tied to deceit here is hypocrisy. Put away all hypocrisy. To speak one way and to act another, this is closely tied to the concept of deceit. To intentionally mislead people about who you are or what the truth is. And let me be plain here, because we often hear about how hypocritical Christians are. Hypocrisy is not defined by the culture. It's defined by God's word. It is true, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who are hypocrites. But the general mark of a Christian congregation and a Christian individual is that he or she is not a hypocrite. And just because you have fallen into sin once does not make you a hypocrite as long as you confess that Christians aren't perfect. Next, we must put away all envy. Few sins are more destructive than envy or covetousness. We see what someone else has or what they are, and instead of praising them, instead of being thankful that God has blessed them in this way, we say, well, why don't I have that? Why does he or she have that when I should have that thing? And instead of rejoicing alongside that person, we seek their destruction in our hearts through envy. We justify such actions. We say, it's not fair that he or she has this. It should be mine. I deserve it. And brothers and sisters, quite honestly, an infinite amount of sins have been justified because of envy. You can talk to yourself again and again and convince yourself that I have a right to this. And there are plenty of voices out there who will tell you just that. And this has justified everything in our lives from gossip to adultery to even murder. Starts with envy. They have something that I want and I think I should have it instead. Envy in a church is an an aggressive cancer that lays waste to a community. And it must be put to death with extreme prejudice. Finally, he says, put away all slander. That is, personal, distorted, and ultimately untrue attacks on the character of another person. Did you hear what this person did? Well, no, I didn't, and maybe I don't want to hear it. Often motivated by envy and with a desire to tear down one another. Slander has murdered countless reputations, divided many churches, and crushed and hindered many ministries. Now, these sins are the focus for Peter for many reasons. One is that many of these attacks were the very attacks the Christians were facing from outside of the church. This is what they were facing from unbelievers, especially the slander and the deceit. And so Satan pressures the church with persecution, and the church is sinned against, and the church can have a real temptation at that time to respond to sin with more sin. That's that old self. And boy, are we living in that day. I was just told this week that a talk show Somebody, somebody said that they didn't know the difference between Christians and the Taliban in America. I'm like, well, you're an idiot if you, if, you don't, if you don't know the difference between the two. Do you feel comfortable walking down the street in downtown somewhere in Afghanistan as a woman 
or in a Christian community in the Midwest? If you don't know the answer to that, then yeah, no one should listen to your opinion on anything. And so the church is constantly attacked by the unbelieving world with slander and accusations. We are called hypocrites, but the standard used to judge us is not true. But here's the problem, is the world does that and we should expect it from the world. The problem is, is that enterprising Christians, we retreat these things and believe these things and spread the lies and the slanders about others using the same standards as the world. We respond to sin with sin. We use the same tactics as the world does and thus we are embracing the sins of the world instead of putting them away. There is no small amount of slander I have seen online from Christians about Christians. That's truly staggering. Especially if you're looking at big name Christians. A report comes out against and if you already don't like that person, you retweet it a thousand times and you've already passed judgment whether or not you fact-checked anything. And the one speaking or tweeting the slander often feels amount of self-righteousness that they're doing the work of God. But God through Peter here has a warning for you. This is not the way of Christ. Now of course, it is fair and right to respond to public comments or public actions publicly. If I say something publicly from the pulpit and someone around the world wants to critique it, they have every right to do so. Because I'm putting this out in public. But this must be done in good faith using Scripture's standards, not the standards of a Twitter mob. And I've seen that principle violated by both my theological opponents and my theological allies. God's standard is impartial. Slander isn't okay even if the person's wrong on other things. Christians must operate by God's standards and not man's. There are times for bold rebukes. There are times for sharp criticism. There are times to spread the word to other Christians. But these things must be done not out of pragmatism, not out of politics, but according to the standards laid out in Scripture. It must be rooted in truth. It must be fair. You must be openly truthful with everything you can be truthful about. You must be saying things online that you'd be willing to say it to that person's face. And if the opportunity exists, you should try to say it to them first before going public. The goal is truth. The goal is repentance. The goal is to operate by God's standards, not man's. For there is no place for these sins in the community of God's church. And where the church fosters these sins, where the church plants these seeds, they will reap a harvest of those sins. Divided we do the work of the enemy for him. Now the next step to growing in maturity is surprisingly to act like children. If you want to grow up, you need to act like a child. Longing for and ingesting the pure spiritual milk. Listen to verse 2. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Now there's other examples in the New Testament where the authors will talk about um, ingesting milk as a newborn nursing infant. And in most of those times in the New Testament, it's a negative thing. The author is saying, you're acting like a little child. Don't be a little child anymore. Peter actually uses it here as a positive that this should mark the entirety of your Christian life, that you should be wholly dependent upon your parent, God the Father, and for sustenance and provision, and that you should long for the pure milk that he has provided for you. 
That is a mark of what it means to be a growing Christian. And just as moms and dads try to feed their children good food, healthy food, just as parents limit the amount of junk food their children consume, God does the same thing. God has provided a good food for you, something that will help you to grow in the faith. And so parents who are willing to fight and even discipline their children to be sure that they eat their veggies and their fruit are mimicking and modeling how God treats us. That when we get on a diet of junk food, you are what you eat, as the old saying goes. One ironic thing about today is how many unbelievers will chide Christians about the food laws in the Old Testament. Oh, you don't eat shellfish. Oh, yeah. All the while, our age has seen one of the largest proliferations of new food laws in food-based righteousness that we've ever seen. There are whole people in movements who don't believe in God, but they will literally judge people by what food you do and do not consume. As the old saying goes, man has a need for righteousness. He has a need to feel virtuous. And the more you dive deeper into sin in other areas of life, as our culture has, you start projecting righteousness in other areas. Like, I feel my sin over here, so here's what I'm doing. I never touch gluten. I'm such a good person. I never have anything except for that is gro- what is grown local or organic or everything that I eat now is plant-based or based off of insects now, whatever the new standard is. It's all unprocessed. I practice Whole30 or the carnivore diet or the keto diet. I'm like, the list could go on and on and on. Now I want to say something here. If you want to do those things for health reasons, I really don't care. There's some wisdom in being healthy with what you consume. But never find righteousness in the food you ingest. All types of eating are lawful for Christians. For all types of food were created by God and declared good. You should give thought to what you eat. You should steward your body well, but never ever place your righteousness in what you eat and never judge someone else by what they do eat or they don't eat. You see, we have this tendency to make our own laws. And parents in particular can feel this shame because there's a million voices out there telling you you should feed your kids this, you shouldn't feed your kids that, and it can, it can come down to what people call mom shaming all the time. Because parents really do want to provide good food for their kids. But just take note of this, as one other pastor noted. If you rewind a couple generations, parents were pressured that the healthiest food they could give their kids was white bread fortified with vitamins and minerals. Every good mom had white bread. Today, you're a bad mom if you got that white bread. (laughs) Think about this. What are you being sold that the next generation is going to laugh at you about? Every good mom's got this food. Well, does she? We don't know as much as what we like to pretend to know. Food is important. God has given it to us to sustain us. God has given it to us in forms that actually taste good because our God is gracious and abounding in love. And we must never forget that God even commanded things like feasts. Feasting, in the right context, is holy in righteousness. To put it another way, to be a total scrooge and killjoy over food is not a mark of holiness. It's a mark of somebody who doesn't understand the blessings God has provided for us. So don't fall into the sin of either gluttony or being a scrooge. Either one is a mark of holiness. You are what you eat, And how you eat says something about what you believe. 
And so Peter uses that analogy to talk about pure spiritual milk. The word used here for pure is the negative form of the Greek word used in verse 1 to refer to deceit. So he says, put away all deceit, and what God has provided for you has no deceit in it whatsoever. It has none of that. It is not watered down. It is straight 100 proof in its substance. Straight milk with nothing altering its content. The word used here for spiritual is an adaptation of the word used for word. All right, logos. All right, so, end of chapter 1, he says you're born again by this imperishable word, logos. God has provided a pure form of logos as your milk. The word of God. He's talking about God's word here. This is what we are to long for. This is what you are to have and develop, develop an appetite for. The pure, unfiltered word of God. The problem with what much of American Christianity is that we tried to bring infants to maturity on a steady diet of spiritual fast food. Watered down. And this creates a desire for more spiritual fast food. Peter says you should want the unwatered down truth of God's word and you should want it regularly. I must mention this here. This is what gets me up in the morning. This is what I strive to do for you every week. I try to give you the pure word of God. I try to not. I intentionally try not to soften the rough edges, if you can't tell. I want to give it to you straight. I want to speak to you plainly because I trust God has provided a food for you and that he knows better than culture or even me what you actually need. That this is the food and the sustenance that you need. And yes, sometimes that milk is really tough to swallow, but it's beneficial to you in the end. And this is the truth that modern nutrition has taught us. The more you eat something, the more you desire it. The more sugar you consume, the more your body will long for sugar. The more vegetables you eat, the more you will long for vegetables. What you eat will determine what you want to eat next time. So the more food you eat spiritually that is good for you, the more you will desire it. And I admit, both in real food and spiritual food, it can be hard to switch from the one desire to the other. But you do that by eating more of it. More of the thing you want to move on to. Spiritual food is just like that. So long for the undiluted truth of God's word. Because, as the Bible calls us to put off or put away our old sin, it is always telling us to put on something new. To put on, here, the word of God. To renew our mind, as Paul says in Romans 12, with the truth found in the word of God. This word, Peter continues, has the power to grow us into salvation. There's a purpose to the milk. The purpose is God, who caused us to be born again, is now using the word to grow us into salvation. There is a goal here. God wants you to grow in holiness, and he has provided the means for you to grow into holiness. And so, we have to say again, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not based on your works at all. And yet, we still have passages like this saying you need to grow into your salvation. You should feel that tension. How do we solve that tension? Nothing you do will earn you salvation, but also you're supposed to do something. 
Well, the term salvation in Scripture is used in at least two different ways. There's a narrow way and a broad way. The narrow way focuses on being born again and justification. That God causes you to go from death to life. He causes you to be born again, to objectively move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, and then he declares you righteous. No works are added to that whatsoever. That's the narrow use of salvation, and that's the way we generally use salvation as evangelicals. When you hear the term salvation in the American church, that's generally what people are referring to. But there is also a broader use of the term salvation in Scripture, and that's what we find here in 2 Peter. And this broader use, or sorry, 1 Peter, this broader use includes things like sanctification and glorification. Sanctification is the day-to-day growing in personal holiness. You cannot do sanctification without God's grace and justification first. But it is still you who cooperate with God to do sanctification. In other words, God doesn't believe for you. God doesn't put off the sin for you. But God empowers you to do it. And then he instructs you to do it. Justification, sanctification, and glorification all make up the fullness of salvation. And glorification is that day when we see Christ and we'll be fully made like him. The focus here is on the sanctification aspect. That once you are justified, God begins the work of sanctifying you degree by degree. And you have certain responsibilities. To repent and believe. To put off and to put on. And so in the narrow sense, justification and regeneration, you have, hear me, already been saved. You'll hear this in the Bible. That you have been saved already. It's a real reality and God has done it. But in another sense, sanctification, growing up into your salvation, you are now being saved. You'll hear that in the New Testament too, that you are being saved right now, that God sustains you in a sinful world and he's transforming you degree by degree. And in another sense, you will be saved. In another sense, you have not yet been fully saved. And that fullness comes when you will be glorified at the appearing of Christ. So I believe this is what Peter is getting at with the idea of growing up into salvation. It is a call to work out, as Paul would say, your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul, the great author who said salvation is not of works, calls you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to grow in holiness and maturity, and to do so with real effort. And then Peter places a condition on all of this. Put away your sin, grow up into salvation. Verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You can't grow up into salvation unless you've tasted that the Lord is good. That initial act of God saving you. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, then these things will happen. And we should be clear here, Peter assumes that they have tasted that the Lord is good. He assumes that these people are indeed saved. He's building off here the imagery of eating and longing for and desiring the pure milk of the Lord. We are to look back at our initial experience of conversion and we are to remember the goodness and the sweetness of the Lord in saving us. 
And as we have times of trial and we have times of doubt, we are to look back and to see the goodness and the sweetness of the Lord again and again. Peter quotes Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, which says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. As we taste the goodness of Christ in God and the Gospel, we find refuge in this life through what God has done. Well, Christianity is unquestionably a religion of revealed truth. God has given us His Word. He says, this is the standard. It's outside of us. It's external. It's objective. We can look at it, we can measure it, and we can study it. But Christianity still needs to be experienced. There are unbelieving scholars of the Bible who will read the Bible, they will study it, and they will come to the right conclusions as to what the Bible teaches. They're not the people trying to deconstruct everything. They will say, yeah, the Bible really does teach. Homosexuality is wrong. It really does teach this, 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 and this but they haven't experienced it. God has given us the external standard, but you have to taste and see that the Lord is good. No one else can do that for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your pastor can't do it for you. You must taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. For to be saved is to be set on an irreversible course of both change and renewal. Like little children growing up, there are fits and starts, but God is our good Father, and we have tasted His goodness in Christ. And so you are called to put off your childish ways, but you are also called to have a childlike dependence upon God and His Word. You are called to have a growing desire for the pure spiritual milk that strengthens us. And in it, we see the goodness of God through the person and the work of Christ. It is our job to desire that word, to long for it, to feed ourselves on that word, to feed our children on that word, and to increase our appetite for what God has graciously given us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have indeed spoken to us in your word. We ask that as we go forward this morning, that you would help us to put away all of those sins, and to walk in the newness of life you have given us in Christ by your Spirit. Lord, may you increase in us a strong longing and hunger for your Word, that we would take it in its purest form, and that we would ingest it, and that it would transform us to become more like your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.